Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the month of July has come to an end, and it is one of the record books thanks to the Federal Reserve. You have both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ Composite with their highest monthly closes ever. Now, they're not the highest daily closes, but on a monthly basis, these are the highest. The Dow Jones didn't quite make it uh, because, you know, it has too many real companies in it. Uh, but the uh, tech stocks were able to help power uh, the NASDAQ and the S&P uh, to new highs. Look at Apple today. Another first. Apple is now the world's most valuable company. It was up almost 11% today alone, up 10.74%. Apple now has a market cap of slightly less than $1.8 trillion, I believe. I mean, a lot of people are now talking about Apple being the first $2 trillion company. And, you know, it could easily happen. I mean, maybe it won't, maybe it will, uh, but it's not that far away. Uh, but, you know, I remember this harkens back to the uh, dot-com bubble. I remember when Cisco Systems was supposed to be the first trillion-dollar company. Now, it never got nearly as close as Cisco is to $2 trillion, But to put that into perspective, the high for Cisco Systems market cap in 2000 was $546 billion. And here you have Apple with a market cap almost four times as much at $1.78 But 
Cisco never made it to a trillion. In fact, it ended up falling back below 100 billion. I forget where the low was for Cisco. It was much lower than where it is now. But even today, 20 years later and another two bubbles later, both the 08 bubble and this bubble, Cisco is barely 200 billion. It's still slightly below a $200 billion market cap, which is 65% below where it was 20 years ago uh, when it was the darling of the dot-com boom. So, you know, Apple, somebody could certainly take a bite off of Apple and it could lose its shine. I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I expect it to happen eventually, although I'm not willing to call the top, especially when you have the Federal Reserve artificially uh, goosing the markets the way it is. In fact, it's not just stocks that set records, but gold and silver. And these are not just monthly records, but all-time closing records for gold. Gold closed the month with its highest monthly close ever. We are up almost 19 bucks today. We closed at 19.76 per ounce. So less than 20 bucks away from $2,000 an ounce. We didn't take it out this week. I think the odds are we're taking it out next week. In fact, we may take it out Sunday night. It's possible that on Monday, when the U.S. stock market opens for business, if you want to buy gold, you're going to have to pay more than $2,000 an ounce uh, to get it. In fact, this was the eighth consecutive week that gold has gone up. I'm not really sure what the record is, but we're probably closing in on it. Um, Silver also was up for eight consecutive weeks. The percentage gain, of course, is a lot bigger in silver, but it's not at a all-time record high. In fact, I, I read this is the best month for silver since 1979, right? That was the year that the Hunt brothers tried to corner the market, right? So this is the best month since then. For gold, it's the best month since 2011, but again, gold is at a record high. Silver is just at its highest monthly close since April of 2013, but I have a feeling silver is going to be taking out a record, probably not this year. I mean, I don't really expect silver to break above $50 an ounce in this calendar year, although I would not rule it out. It is certainly within the realm of possibility. Uh, but I think it's much more probable that silver will crack that record in 2021 rather than in 2020. But of course, the flip side of gold and silver going up is the U.S. dollar going down. And in fact, that's still a better way to look at it. It's not gold that just set an all-time record high. It is the dollar that just set an all-time record low you get less gold for your dollar than you've ever got before. In fact, I mentioned on one of my earlier podcasts that the very first official price of gold back in 1792 was $19 and I think it was $0.22 an ounce or something like that. Well, gold is now officially more than 100 times more expensive than it was in 1792, which means the U.S. dollar has now lost better than 99% of its original value, thanks to the Federal Reserve. Because until the Federal Reserve came around, as I mentioned on my other podcast, the dollar's value was relatively stable. You could buy the same amount of gold uh, over time. But it's been collapsing more recently, particularly ever since we went off the gold standard in 1971. And I think it's about to collapse completely. 
in the coming years if we even have uh, years. It may even be months. I mean, who knows at this point? I think we literally are living on borrowed time. Uh, this is a, you know, a game of musical chairs, and the music could stop at any minute. And if you are not in a chair, meaning out of U.S. dollars, then you are out of this game for good. In fact, the dollar index, which measures the dollar's value against a basket of currencies, it declined for the sixth consecutive week. And despite a rebound today, I think there was some short covering in the dollar index today, it was still down on the week. In fact, this was the biggest monthly drop for the U.S. dollar index since 2010. So you got to go back a decade to find a month as weak as the month that we just experienced. And of course, remember, before this month began, there was a lot of bullishness on the U.S. dollar. And as is normally the case, the consensus was wrong. I've been out there talking about how I thought the dollar was going to fall. And it's not just going to fall. It is going to get killed. It is going to collapse. I mean, right now, nobody seems to care. Nobody is worried about the weak dollar Again, maybe because it's a slow, orderly decline and because people think it's a good thing. Oh, yeah, it's going to help uh, our exports. It's going to be good for corporate earnings. They are only going to worry when it becomes a disorderly crash and it starts disrupting other markets like the stock market. That is going to happen. But I think the dollar is going to crash from a much lower level. I think if you look at a chart, I think maybe around 80. I think once the dollar index breaks below 80, then I think the slow orderly decline could turn into a very rapid disorderly crash and be very disruptive for other markets. Now, how long is it going to take for the dollar index to crack 80? Well, at the current rate of descent, it could do it before the end of the year. But if it doesn't do it this year, maybe we get some kind of rally of the dollar, right? Nothing falls in a straight line. You always get rallies uh, in a bear market, just like you always get Uh, sell-offs in a bull market. So the dollar could have a rally, although the momentum to me looks incredible. And I think the selling pressure will intensify. But I think once it really starts to crash, then it's going to be a major concern. Now, another market that hit records today was the treasury market. On a monthly basis, the 10-year and the 30-year treasury bonds closed at the lowest yields in history, right? At a time when the U.S. debts are the biggest in history and there's no end in sight, the U.S. government is able to borrow at the lowest rates in history. Now, does that sound normal? Does that sound like that's the way it should be in a free market? Of course not. When you have a lot of debt, you should be paying more to borrow. You are a greater credit risk the more debt you have. Yet the U.S. government is being rewarded with the lowest interest rates ever, despite it being the worst credit risk ever, as judged by the sheer amount of uh, debt that it has. And in fact, after the close today, Fitch, you know, one of the major rating agencies uh, in the U.S., you got Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Those Those are the big boys. But they came out today and they lowered their outlook on U.S. Treasuries from stable to negative. But of course, they left the AAA rating intact. So they didn't actually cut the rating, 
but they lowered their outlook, meaning that maybe in the future they will cut their rating. Now, the last time a major agency actually reduced the rating on U.S. Treasuries was Standard & Poor's. And it was about a decade ago, I think. And this was in response to QE1, which pales in comparison to what we're doing now. And back then, S&P cited the very reasons uh, that that Fitch is citing today, just the out-of-control deficits and no end in sight. And Standard & Poor's lowered the credit rating. It didn't just you know, reduce the outlook. It actually took it down a notch from AAA to AA plus, where it stands today. Um, and of course, you know, everything that S&P was concerned about when it lowered the rating, it's all come true. In fact, based on what they said that then, they should have reduced the rating many times by now. It shouldn't be rated AA+. But remember, they were so scared after they initially downgraded them, they ended up getting fined. They were like the only rating agency that ended up having to pay a penalty for overrating mortgages and, and its role in the, the housing bubble and the ensuing financial crisis. So the government singled out S&P to be punished, even though all the rating agencies basically did the same thing. Uh S&P was singled out, and I think the reason was because they were the only one that had the gall to downgrade uh, U.S. Treasuries, and so to send a message, not only to S&P, like, hey, don't do that again, but to Fitch and Moody's, uh, hey, this will be a lesson to you. You know, you leave our credit rating alone. And of course, you got to remember that the subprime mortgages, which really were drunk bonds, but which were rated investment grade, remember, the, the tranche that we shorted, right, that I shorted and helped clients at Europe Pacific Capital short were rated triple B minus by the big rating agencies. That was the lowest notch of investment grade. So all these rating agencies were saying these are investment grade bonds. I knew at the time they were junk and they were being overrated uh, and there was collusion going on between uh, the issuers, the underwriters and uh, the the rating agencies, but only uh, standard importers was somewhat held accountable for putting investment-grade ratings on bonds that should have been rated junk. Well, they're doing the same thing with the U.S. Treasury. U.S. Treasuries should be junk bonds. I mean, they not only should they not be rated AAA, they shouldn't be rated at all, right? And in fact, this is a, uh, a disparity, right? You've got Fitch lowering the outlook on U.S. Treasuries on the same day that Treasuries closed at their highest price ever on a monthly basis, which means investors, in theory, have the most amount of confidence ever in the credit worthiness of the United States that they're willing to loan the United States money for 10 to 30 years at the lowest rates in history. And that's the same day where Fitch comes out and says, oh, no, we're going to lower our outlook because we now think that the U.S. government is in danger of not being able to fully repay its obligations. Of course, I remember, ironically, the last time when um, S&P actually downgraded U.S. Treasuries, the stock market went down a lot that day. That was like a really like a shot across the market's bow. Like that came out of left field. Nobody had ever expected it. Because remember, U.S. Treasuries are supposed to be risk free, right? It's the risk free rate. And all of a sudden, Standard & Poor's said, wait a minute, they may not be risk free because they took it down a notch. And so the stock market went down and investors were so worried 
about the stock market going down because treasuries were downgraded that they rushed in and bought treasuries. So treasuries actually rallied as a result of their own downgrade, which shows you how ridiculous it is because everybody just looks at U.S. treasuries as being a safe haven. And in fact, they're so blindly you know, following the crowd that in that circumstance, the U.S. treasuries actually became a safe haven from U.S. treasuries. So because you were worried about U.S. treasuries, you bought U.S. treasuries, the very instrument that you were worried about, and you bought it as a safe haven from itself, which shows you how absurd this is that treasuries can be perceived as a safe haven from themselves. The real safe haven is gold, and that's what the smart money is buying. And I think more of the smart money is going to buy it on Sunday night after the market really starts to digest uh, the significance of the Fitch outlook reduction, which, of course, is too little too late. It's all meaningless. None of this matters. The only thing more ridiculous than Fitch lowering its outlook on U.S. Treasuries is the fact that it left the AAA rating intact. As I said, it should be junk bond. There is no rating low enough uh, for U.S. Treasuries. They should be given F. Now, obviously, people will say, but Peter, there's no chance that they're going to default. Well, A, we don't even know that. In fact, the U.S. government opened the door recently to defaulting on China. We were saying, hey, we don't like the way the Chinese have been negotiating. We don't like their trade policies. We think they infected us with the China flu, aka coronavirus, COVID-19. Maybe in retaliation, we're not going to pay on the treasuries. We're going to default on those treasuries. So we've actually raised the specter of default ourselves. So you can't really say that there's no chance that the U.S. government will default. And in fact, if the U.S. government does the right thing, and I recognize that's a big if, but if the government does do the right thing, it will default because there's no way to repay. So default is the only honest way out of this mess. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But most people think that there's no chance that the U.S. government will ever do the right thing. Uh, And so they think they're just going to print. And they think because the U.S. government can print as much money as it wants, well, then it never has to default, and therefore U.S. Treasuries uh, should be rated AAA. But when you are rating a sovereign that borrows in its own currency, right, you are not supposed to be looking at default. You can assume that the risk of default is zero. What you have to look at when you are rating sovereigns that borrow in their own currency is the future value of that currency. So the rating is not on the bond, but the rating is on the currency that the bond is denominated in and that the lender will be repaid in. You see, not being repaid and being repaid with worthless money are the same thing. And if the U.S. government were to do a restructuring and pay off 50 cents on the dollar, right? Everybody would say, oh, that's a huge default. If there was a significant risk that the U.S. government might only pay back 50 cents on the dollar, right? S&P, Moody's, Fitch would all substantially reduce the rating on U.S. treasuries. Clearly, they're not risk-free if you're going to lose half your money. Well, it's the same thing if the dollar loses half its value and you get paid with money that buys half as much as the money you loaned. And in fact, nowhere is that more obvious than to our international creditors who need to look at the exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and their own currency. If I'm in Europe and I lend somebody U.S. dollars, I have to take my euros and buy the dollars. And in 10 years, when I get paid back dollars and have to rebuy the euros, if I can only buy back half as many euros as I sold to make the loan, I've lost half my money. So I arrived at the same destination, regardless of how the government got me there, whether it was through default or through inflation. So what the rating agencies are supposed to be looking at when they decide what rating to put on U.S. Treasuries is, will the U.S. Treasury be able to repay this debt honestly by raising taxes on American taxpayers or reducing government spending on things like Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, pensions, all that, so that they can honestly free up the money to repay the creditors? Or does the U.S. government have so much debt and lack the political uh, courage to cut spending or raise taxes or even the ability to do it because the American public is too broke to afford the higher taxes? And therefore, will the U.S. government have to resort to a printing press to repay the debt? And the answer to that is obvious. Of course we will. We've already resorted to a printing press right now. The Fed is printing trillions and trillions of dollars right now. If if it wasn't, we couldn't meet the obligations on the existing debt, let alone repay it or meet the obligations on additional debt. So clearly, 
if Standard & Poor's, Moody's, or Fitch were being honest about the outlook for the U.S. dollar, they would, you know, cut the, the rating on U.S. treasuries right now because there's no way anybody who buys a U.S. treasury for 10-year maturity or 30-year maturity, even worse, if you hold that bond to maturity, there is no way you're going to get your purchasing power back. There is no way you are going to be whole. And the little teeny bit of interest that you get you know, at you know 1% or half a percent or whatever it is, that tiny bit of interest will be insignificant compared to the purchasing power that you lose uh, for holding that bond to maturity. So the whole thing is ridiculous. These bonds are junk. They are more junk than the subprime mortgages that were junk, but that were rated uh, investment grade. Uh, and, and so maybe though, just Fitch just, you know, saying something that should be obvious, right? It's like, you know, the emperor's new clothes. You get one little kid that says, hey, wait a minute. I can't see the, the, the suit. The guy's naked. You know, maybe somebody saying that is enough. So maybe this could be like an emperor has no clothes moment uh, for the U.S. dollar. Uh, most likely not uh, because, you know, I think it's going to take uh, something more significant than this to get people to see what should be obvious. But eventually it will happen, but it clearly is a negative. And I think it'll be very interesting to watch the markets react uh, on Sunday because they didn't get a chance to react today because the downgrade or of the outlook took place after the close. You know, despite the run-up in the price of gold and the extremely bullish outlook, you know, watching CNBC again, all I really hear uh, is more reasons not to buy gold. You know, Rick Santelli, who is one of the better guys on CNBC, actually, uh, he's the guy that really got the Tea Party started, although, you know, he drunk the Trump Kool-Aid. And so he kind of like, you know, dumped his tea away and and, uh, and became a real Trump backer, even as the deficits were soaring out of control in a way that was much bigger than anything he was protesting when the deficits were rising under Obama. But he was on CNBC today warning viewers not to buy gold talking about how it was overextended and it had gone up so much. And he basically was saying that people who buy gold, like me, I guess, we're not really like investors. It's a religion. We just buy gold on faith out of our religion and that we're very fickle. And we can have, you know, a conversion at any moment and go for a different religion. And so gold is very risky. And he pointed to the peak in 1980 and he said, look, you know, if you bought gold in 1980, uh, you didn't get back to that same price until about 2004, 2005. In other words, what he's warning people is that if you buy gold today at almost $2,000 an ounce, it could be 20 years, 25 years before you see 2000 again. And I think, again, seeing stuff like that, it's very bullish as far as I'm concerned, because this is not 1980s or 1990s. This is the 1970s on steroids. That is the decade when gold went from 35 to 800. That's what Rick Santelli is missing. This is the 70s show. It's not Reagan Volcker 1980s where interest rates are at 20% and you know we're trying to cut government. This is where interest rates are at zero and we're expanding government. We're about to put the socialists in charge, right? So we are early in the 70s. In fact, it's like 1970. We've got a huge bull market ahead of us. Gold at 2000 is almost like gold at 35 bucks, right? That's about where we are. Now, I, I don't necessarily think it's that cheap because gold had been artificially suppressed for a long time. 
at 35 bucks. So maybe it's like gold at 50 bucks or something like that compared, you know, and it went up to 850. So we have got a huge decade in front of us before you really need to start warning people about not buying gold. I think you need to see 10,000, 15, 20,000 gold before some type of warning like that may be appropriate. At this point, you you should be buying, I think, with both hands. Now, of course, you should have been buying already, right? You shouldn't have been sitting on the sidelines waiting for 2,000, right? If you've been following my advice for years, you already own a bunch of gold. So you don't have to buy your first ounces at $2,000. But if you're just discovering me for the first time and you don't own any gold, yeah, go out and buy it because it's just going to get more expensive. Now, could it pull back to 1900 or 1800? Sure. Who cares? Buy more if it does. Count yourself lucky if you get to buy more gold cheaper. Uh, but most likely, you'll be buying more gold more expensive. Because if you keep earning money, what are you going to do with it? If you don't spend it, if you want to save it, you got to convert it into gold or you got to convert it into silver. But again, there's so much skepticism out there. Look what happened yesterday. Gold was down... 15 or 20 bucks on Thursday. All it did is give up the gains from Wednesday. Nothing. Gold was still over, you know, 1950 or whatever it was an ounce. It was almost at a record high, but gold stocks got killed. I mean, they lost all of their gains going back, I think, to July 20th when the price of gold was under $100 an ounce lower than it was yesterday. And the reason that gold stock investors were so quick to bail on their stocks on the first sign of a drop is because they're so scared that the bull market is over, right? This is the classic bull market climbing a wall of worry. Gold stocks investors are so scared. They're so nervous that they're going to sell at a moment's notice. Now, of course, they had to come rushing back and buy the stocks back. Gold stocks had a big update today because everybody had to buy back what they sold because the bull market isn't over. We just made a new high. You know, contrast that to the attitude in the tech market where, you know, no one is afraid of anything, right? It's just buy, 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 right? Nothing can go down. You've got nothing but greed when it comes to the tech stocks and you still got fear dominating the mining stocks. We also got some economic news that came out today. You know, we finally got the first look at the estimate for GDP for the second quarter. And the consensus was for a 35% drop, which is the biggest drop ever uh, for GDP in a quarter. Remember, that's annualized. So you have to divide by four to see exactly how much it actually dropped in, in a raw number, not annualized for a year. But they were looking for minus 35%. And we got to beat, hey, the economy only contracted by 32.9%. Fantastic, right? Better than expected, right? Lower expectations make the bar real low. And then you have a shot at exceeding it. Although, again, this is just a first uh, estimate. We have no idea how they're going to revise this. Apparently, one of the reasons it wasn't a lot lower was a big uh, increase in RV sales. You know, I guess I sold my RV a year too early. I was having a hard time selling mine. Uh, and eventually I sold it, I think, uh, you know, at a really low price just to get rid of the thing. Maybe if I'd have held on to it, uh, I might have been able to get a better price. Apparently, a lot of people are buying RVs. I don't know if they're buying them to live in them uh, or if they're, they're just going to travel in them because they don't want to use airplanes or uh, other forms of public transportation. Uh, so they bought a bunch of RVs. Uh, but 
if not for that, apparently, maybe the number would have been worse than minus 35. But I think the more important number that came out yesterday wasn't the GDP number. It was actually the weekly jobless claims number. And the reason that I think it was so significant, it's not just that it was the 19th consecutive week where the number was north of a million uh, new claims for unemployment benefits, but it was the second week in a row that not only did the number exceed expectations, but it actually exceeded the prior week. So we now have two weeks in a row of increasing unemployment claims. In fact, last week, the initial report was 1,416,000. We revised that up to 1,422,000. They thought we would have a slight decline this week to 1,388,000. And instead, we actually increased to 1,434,000. And more uh, importantly, is the continuing claims numbers are now rising. So we have more people who continue to be unemployed, and now more people are losing their jobs. So what this tells you is that whatever recovery that people thought we had is already over, and the relapse has already started. The day before that, though, on Wednesday, we got the conclusion of the FOMC's two-day meeting where they announced any changes to monetary policy. And of course, there were none. I mean, no official changes. Rates stay at zero. QE is going to continue indefinitely. But once again, the announcement was followed up with a press conference. And the whole these whole things are just nothing but nonsense. Uh, but I thought the most interesting aspect of the press conference was when Powell was once again asked about interest rates and and, and when they might rise, right? Because everybody wants to know, hey, when are rates going to go up? And remember, the last time he got that question, Powell said that he was not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, right? So not only wasn't he thinking about it, he wasn't even thinking about thinking about it. And at the time, I said that that was probably the most reckless and irresponsible statement that the Federal Reserve chairman had ever made. Because you would think and you would want and you would hope that the Federal Reserve had contingency plans, right? That the Federal Reserve was running all sorts of scenarios and they were playing like, what if? Like, what will we do if this happens, right? So they're prepared for anything, right? Have all these various scenarios and have a plan. So what uh, Powell was saying is the Fed is not even thinking about circumstances that might require a rate hike. And so they're not even thinking about how they would handle that or how the economy might react to a rate hike uh, because they must assume that it's impossible, right, for there to be such a scenario. Well, what if inflation does rear its head? Or what if the economy isn't even as weak as they thought, right? What if circumstances play out differently from their most likely scenario? Isn't there some type of circumstance where they might have to raise rates. Basically, what Powell was saying was, no, we don't even care what happens in the future. We're not going to raise rates. And so when he got that question again, I guess he wanted to make the point even stronger that the Fed didn't give a damn what happened. So instead of saying, we're not thinking about thinking about raising rates, this time he said, we're not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates. So in other words, he added a third thinking about, which to me is like an unofficial ease, right? Monetary policy just got easier because the Fed is not even thinking about thinking about thinking about 
raising interest rates. Now, I don't know if he's going to keep this pattern going and add a fourth or a fifth, but I think we get the message. There are no circumstances where the Fed's going to raise rates. They're telling you that now. And I think the reason the Fed is saying this is because they know that they can't ever raise rates because the whole economy will implode. So they're telling you it doesn't matter what happens. We don't care how low the dollar goes. We're not going to raise rates. We don't care how high the price of gold goes. We're not going to raise rates. We don't care how high consumer prices rise. We're not going to raise rates because we can't. And because we know we can't, we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about it. That is what they're telling the markets. The markets should be thinking, oh, my God, I got to get out of the dollar. Right. The Fed basically told me, right, what a predicament it's in, that it can't even consider rate hikes because they're impossible. So I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. I'm going to sell dollars. I'm going to buy gold. Right. That is what the Fed is telling you. Right. And obviously, some people are listening to what the Fed is saying. That's why gold is going up. That's why the dollar is going down. But more people are going to get the message and gold is going much higher uh, and the dollar is going much lower and they're going to get there much quicker. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And one of the things that's going to help us get there quicker is going to be the extension of the CARES Act, whatever it is that they are going to uh, pass. Uh, you don't know yet, but all these benefits are expiring uh, at the end of this month. So they guess they got to work over the weekend for some temporary extension so the voters uh, don't lose out on their $600 a month checks or any other benefits. You know, I read, too, that somebody slipped into one of these things. Uh, they want to make it again so that businesses can fully deduct uh, business meals. You know, they changed that. They used to be fully deductible. So if you took a client out to lunch or out to dinner, you can deduct the cost of the meal. And then they changed it so they c you can only deduct half the cost of the meal, which obviously made eating in restaurants more expensive uh, because more of the cost was borne by the business. And of course, there is a lot of fraud in that. I mean, a lot of meals are not really business meals. A lot of people just go out socially and just, you know, claim it as a business meal. In fact, I know what a lot of people do. They go out with their friends and let's say there's a group of six people and, uh, you know, 
everybody chips in some cash. One guy will put the entire thing on his business card, put the cash in his pocket and claim this huge deduction uh, for a, a business meal. Meanwhile, he actually made money on the meal because he put cash in his pocket and then he got a tax deduction. So he ended up getting a free meal and he got paid. So there was always a lot of fraud going in uh, on, on this. And so they reduced it uh, by, 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 by cutting the deductibility. But now what they're saying is to help the restaurants they want to restore full deductibility so that more people will go eat in restaurants. And obviously, the restaurants are hurting right now. Uh, people aren't going out. But of course, it's really not going to make much of a difference if the restaurants are closed or if people you know, don't want to go because they don't want to wear a mask or they're afraid uh, of, getting, of getting COVID. But you know, I had a better idea for these restaurants. Instead of making it a tax deduction, why not just make it a credit? Like you get 100% credit for whatever you spend at a restaurant because that means eating out in restaurants will be free, right? And so if any business, if you can eat in a restaurant for free, I mean, you're going to eat all your meals in a restaurant. I mean, the restaurant industry is going to boom. In fact, when eating in restaurants becomes free, well, the restaurants can charge whatever they want. Who cares? The government's paying for it, right? The Federal Reserve is going to pay for it. So let's make eating in restaurants free. Then restaurants can be like hospitals, or like schools, right? They could charge a lot more money because now the government would be subsidizing uh, people for using their services. Obviously, that's a joke, but who knows? I mean, they, they, I wouldn't put it past these guys. But my point is to illustrate the problems with third-party payers in healthcare or education, right? If we introduced a third-party payer into the restaurant business, we would have the same results, which would be uh, skyrocketing prices. But again, there's all kinds of stuff that they're trying to put into this bill. Uh, and we'll see what, what they get passed. Again, I have a feeling that the Republicans don't have the guts. Trump doesn't have the nerve with an election coming. And of course, one of the things that happened this week is the president tweeted out that maybe we should postpone the election. That, hey, maybe maybe it's not going to be fair. We have all these people voting from home, so maybe we should postpone the election until it's safe. And, of course, the markets, you know, for a nanosecond got nervous about the political ramifications of Trump postponing the election. Of course, he's not going to do it. But, you know, in reality, I don't blame Trump for wanting to postpone it because he's way behind in the polls. But what Trump doesn't realize is the longer he postponed it, I think the further behind in the polls he's going to fall. I think Trump's best shot at getting elected is if we had the election right now, because I think the economy is only going to get worse. And therefore, Trump's chances of getting reelected are going to be worse. In fact, if you listen to Trump talking now, right, he sounds more and more like Bernie Sanders every day. Recently, in talking about, you know, extending these uh, uh, unemployment benefits, Donald Trump said, look, the most important thing is we got to take care of the people. I'm going to take care of the people. The government's going to take care of the people, right? Well, the government is not supposed to be there to take care of the people. We're not a nanny state. The people are supposed to support the government. Yet Donald Trump believes that the role of government in the United States is to support the people. It's not. The people are supposed to support themselves. And the government doesn't have any money. See, that's what Donald Trump doesn't seem to understand. The government can't support the people when it's the people's money that the government needs to support anything. So if Trump wants the government to support the people, whose money? Which people are going to pay to support the other people? See, Trump wants to pretend 
that we don't have to raise anybody's taxes. In fact, Trump has been advocating for a payroll tax cut. I mean, how are you going to dole out more money to the people and then cut taxes on the people at the same time, right? So Trump is acting like this big spending Keynesian socialist, kind of like Bernie Sanders that he criticized. You know, in his State of the Union address, one of his addresses, I think maybe the first one, because of the rise of popularity of Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump came out and he said, America will never be a socialist nation. Now, too bad it already is in many respects, but, you know, we haven't gone, you know, full turkey socialism. But Trump was meaning, look, on my watch, right, we're not going to let America be a socialist nation. We're a capitalist country and we're not going to give in uh, to all this socialist rhetoric, right? Well, what did Trump announce this week? Right. With lots of fanfare, he feels great about it. Donald Trump announced a deal, a partnership, basically, between the U.S. government and Kodak. Right. Kodak, which, you know, invented uh, the film and camera and Eastman Kodak was one of the I think it was one of the uh, nifty 50 back in the bubble days of the 1960s, along with Polaroid, which was another uh, a camera company. But of course, they ended up getting killed. Initially, Fujifilm, uh, you know, was beating them up uh, in, in film. But eventually, the digital camera, which they even invented, by the way, uh, basically destroyed their industry. And it's really a shadow of what it used to be. And all of a sudden, Donald Trump comes out and announces that the government is loaning Kodak $765 million so that Kodak can get into the pharmaceutical business. And they're going to be manufacturing ingredients for pharmaceuticals. And I I just read, I guess, in the press release, this money is going to fund the launch of this pharmaceutical division within Eastman Kodak, right, so that they can make the the essential drug components that are now in, in short supply, right? And first of all, what are the reasons that we have such a short supply of drugs. Well, because we drove all the manufacturing abroad, right? Based on excess government spending, excess regulation, a lack of domestic capital due to artificially low interest rates and an overvalued dollar, right? Uh, we, we, we exported that industry. But the point is, why is Kodak going to the U.S. government to get this money, right? Why isn't Kodak getting the money in the private sector. And of course, you know, Kodak stock, first of all, was under $2 a share in March, under two bucks. It hit a high of $60 this week. Now it pulled back, it closed at $21.85, but still a big, big gain. You know, there's some insiders that were sitting on some stock options that were worthless uh, before this deal was announced. And now these guys are going to make millions and millions of dollars off this government deal. Uh, But if... Kodak actually had a viable plan to enter the pharmaceutical manufacturing business. Why does it need the U.S. government to fund it? Why can't it fund it privately? Why can't it issue new stock to fund this new uh, pharmaceutical division? Why can't it sell bonds to the private sector to finance this pharmaceutical division? Probably because it's not going to work. It didn't happen in the private sector because there's probably no one dumb enough to finance it. There probably wasn't a viable business plan there that would uh, result in the private sector willingly diverting resources 
to this project. Because after all, I mean, any money that goes to Kodak to start a pharmaceutical division is savings or money that can't go someplace else. There's a limited amount of it. And you got to decide what business ventures you, you want to fund. And you're going to fund the ones that have the best chance of giving you a good return on your investment. Probably Kodak didn't have a prayer of getting $765 million in the private sector because what they were doing isn't worth $765 million. Meaning if they borrowed $765 million, they probably could never repay the loans. And so the lenders would lose money. And so they didn't want to lend. And so the U.S. government decides, hey, we'll do it. You know, we'll make this dumb loan that nobody would be willing to make with their own money because what do we give a damn? Because it's not our money. In fact, it's not even taxpayers' money. The Fed's going to print it, right? So Donald Trump is basically going to direct the Federal Reserve to print up an extra $765 million and give it to Kodak and call it a loan. You know, the odds of this loan being repaid are pretty slim. But what this is, is socialism, right? That is this Kodak moment that nobody wants to acknowledge. And it is not a pretty picture. It is socialism or fascism or whatever you want to call it, but it's the opposite of what Donald Trump promised. This is central government planning. This is government bureaucrats picking winners and losers, deciding that Kodak should be a pharmaceutical manufacturing company. And the U.S. government is going to loan money to Kodak. Look, if the guys at the U.S. government were such great venture capitalists, see what they're saying, what Donald Trump and his cronies are saying is that we spotted this gem, right? All the other private equity funds or hedge funds or all the other investment banks, they overlooked this. I mean, this is a great deal. Like the geniuses at the U.S. government at investing other people's money have decided that this is the, the best place to fund a loan for a, a, a drug manufacturing company, right? This is nonsense to, to believe that the wisdom of central planners is better than the market and that people investing other people's money will make more rational, better decisions than people investing their own money. And I know a lot of these hedge funds or private equity guys, there's other people's money there too, but they also have a lot of their own money at stake. Most of the guys that run these funds, they're the largest investors. So they got a lot of skin in the game. The government has no skin in the game. (laughs) That's why they shouldn't even be in the game. But this game is not capitalism that they're playing, right? This is socialism and, and, and Trump is leading the charge. So if we've got this much socialism under Trump, if we got Trump saying the government has to take care of the people, if we got Trump saying the government should should pick winners and losers and directly fund companies. Again, I went over the constitutionality. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the U.S. government can loan money to anybody. The U.S. government can borrow money. That's authorized in Article 1, Section 8, but they're not authorized to lend money. It's an unconstitutional expenditure anyway. But if we have a president who says he's not a socialist, acting like a socialist, Imagine what's going to happen when we get a president who would admit to being a socialist. I mean, imagine how much more Biden is going to act as a socialist. And of course, you know, again, who knows who uh, is going to be the real president when Biden is elected? I mean, he's going to be elected. I mean, he's going to be the oldest president ever. In fact, I think he's going to be older when he was elected than Reagan was when he finished, when he left office. And he's already, you know, losing his mental faculties. Uh, you know, so who knows? I mean, if, if he ever got coronavirus, I mean, that'd be it, right? I mean, talk about comorbidities. I mean, they better keep this guy, you know, in isolation. If he even gets a cold, that could be the end of Biden. So the vice president is going to be very key. We'll see who he picks there. We know one thing, it's going to be a black woman, right? Because he's already acknowledged 
that he is going to discriminate against everybody else. And nobody seems to care uh, that Biden is basing his hiring decision on race and gender. And he is discriminating against all men, even if they're black or Hispanic or Asian. You know, no men are under consideration. You have to be a woman. I mean, then you have to be a black woman. So he's discriminating against white women, against Hispanic women, against Asian women. But apparently that's okay. As long as you're discriminating in favor of a special select class, then you can discriminate all you want against everybody else, even if they are also a member of one of those sacrosanct victim classes. Anyway, that's it for today. Want to remind everybody, you know, on my YouTube channel, check out, there's a couple of uh, new videos I posted up there. You know, we're almost at 360,000 subscribers now to my YouTube channel. So if you're not a subscriber, uh, take an opportunity to do that. But I actually posted a, um, a panel discussion that I took place in The Atlantic hosted it. And it was, I think, 2012. And they were really praising... Um, uh, ben Bernanke. They had just come out with that cover where Ben Bernanke was the hero. And I had a lot of like kind of bigwig mainstream economists that were up on that panel with me. And I remember, you know, there some people made a video uh, way back when. And a couple of them got a really a lot of views. But I had never had the video on my YouTube channel. And when someone had sent it to me again, I looked at it. And there were so many things that I said during that panel that were so appropriate to right now, because really what I was talking about was the next crisis that was being created by the Fed. And the next crisis is about to happen. Now, when I was doing that panel, I believed that the crisis that the Fed was creating was going to happen sooner. Uh, Instead, it's happening later. So there was a longer gap between the Uh, the mistakes that the Fed made following the 2008 financial crisis and the payback, right? Uh, They sowed the winds a long time ago, and it's taken longer than I thought to reap the whirlwind, but now it's going to come even bigger than I ever thought. So I thought that it was a particularly good time to uh, upload that uh, discussion, that panel onto my YouTube channel. So it's there. Also, just last night, I put up a short three-minute clip of some of my recent appearances on Fox Business. You'll notice that two of the appearances are with Liz Clayman, because basically, as far as the mainstream is concerned, Fox Business is the only uh, network that will have me on, and and most notably Liz Clayman, but Charles Payne, he had me on as well. But I have a few Fox Business's appearances. I have a little bit from Joe Rogan and at Cambridge House. But I put this together. I'm going to be using it as an ad uh, on YouTube uh, to try to get investors. So, but I put it up there to see what people think about it. So give it a look, share it. But the goal ultimately of this particular three minute clip, and that's why it's so short, is you know, I'm gonna run it as ads and, and certain keywords so that I'm gonna target investors to get them thinking about changing their investment strategies to conform with what we're doing at Europe Pacific Capital, which is getting people out of U.S. dollars and starting to think about inflation and the effect inflation is going to have on your portfolio. Just like I said earlier in the podcast about treasury bonds, don't think about the U.S. government defaulting. Think about the U.S. government inflating. Think about not that you don't get repaid, but that you do get repaid. It's just that the money that you're paid in buys very little or maybe nothing at all. I want people to start thinking about those realities and then acting on them now 
while they still have a chance uh, by opening up accounts with me so I can get them out of the dollar and build foreign portfolios, get them dividends coming in foreign currencies, get them some exposure to precious metals and mining stocks. So if you haven't already done that, do it yourself, but you can also share this link with with your friends and maybe they'll end up becoming uh, clients of Euro-Pacific Capital as well. And by the way, uh, I am now up to 40,000 followers on Instagram. Thanks to everybody who is now following me. But, you know, still I got a bunch of slackers because, again, I'm at, what, getting close to 275,000 Twitter followers. And as I said, almost 360,000 YouTube subscribers. 40,000 uh, Instagram is pretty pathetic. So I got a, a much larger audience out there. And I know you guys are using Instagram, right? Instagram is very popular. And so you're on Instagram. Just go to Peter Schiff and follow me. I am cooking up some really good content. In fact, I think we just brought on a guy full time uh, who is going to be helping me with content for Instagram. I really want to try to utilize that platform. My wife in particular is very excited. She's been really pushing me uh, about Instagram. And so I'm doing it. But obviously, you know, the more people who are following me on Instagram, the more effective I'm going to be because now I have a bigger base that can help me spread the message. So I really want to get up to 100,000 at a minimum uh, followers on Instagram. So if you're not following me and you're on Instagram, do it. And if you're not on Instagram, well, just get on Instagram. Just sign up for the specific purpose of following me. That's it for now. Have a great weekend, everybody. And again, it could be a very interesting Sunday night. (music) 